well, if it worked for that person, it should work for me. Well, maybe, maybe not. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Gretchen Rubin, one of today's most influential and thought-provoking observers of happiness and human nature. Gretchen is known for her ability to distill and convey complex ideas with humor and clarity in a way that's accessible to a wide audience. She's the author of many books, which have sold over 3.5 million copies worldwide in more than 30 languages. She also has an award-winning podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Hi, Gretchen. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. It's a pleasure to have you on. You've written a lot of wonderful books. You've got a wonderful podcast, and uh, we'll be getting into all those things here shortly. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There is a grandmother who's talking with her grandson, and she says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he looks up at his grandmother and he says, well, grandmother, which one wins? And the grandmother says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, it's interesting because I'm a big fan of Star Wars, the Star Wars saga, and it reminds me of the Force, you know, where they always say the Force, it's not that the dark side is stronger, but it's easier. And I think it's very much there, like one side kind of can be easier, more impulsive. It can kind of give you that quick hit. Um, and sometimes the things that will make us happy over the long term are more demanding and they may require us to do things that feel like a deprivation or feel like an imposition or take some more self-mastery. 
so the two wolves are not equal in their um, accessibility to us. Um, they're both in there, um, but it's it's easier to get to one wolf than the other. Yeah, boy, that is true sometimes, isn't it? That one of them is, is certainly easier than the other. You've got some different things you call secrets of adulthood. And one of the things that I love is make sure the things we do to make ourselves feel better don't make us feel worse. Yeah, I quit sugar, which people are like, how in the world could you quit sugar? And what's the use of life without a brownie? And I say, not eating sugar makes me so much happier than eating sugar ever did. And yeah, it tastes good right now, but then I'm just in that cycle of craving and do I want more? And it's just this boring noise in my head. And when I gave up sugar, I was just like, wow, now it's just gone. It's like wonderful. And so I realized I thought it was making me feel good, but in the end, it was making me feel bad. Yep. There's lots of things that are like that. And that is a great segue into one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you've talked in the past about abstainers and moderators. Yes. So tell me just a little bit about that. And then I've got a couple questions more specifically related to that. Yes. Well, when I was writing my book, Better Than Before, which is all about the 21 strategies we can use to make or break our habits, one of the things I realized is that a lot of times people are like, well, this is the right way to change a habit or this is the best way. What I found is really... There's a lot of variety in what works for people. Um, it's not the case that there's one best way. It's it's what way works for you. And I found that when it comes to facing a strong temptation, not a weak temptation, a strong temptation, people divide into abstainers and moderators. So abstainers are people who find it easier to give things up altogether. They're kind of all or nothing types. And it's like me, I can have no Thin Mint cookies. I can have a sleeve of Thin Mint cookies. I can't have two Thin Mint cookies. I can't have half a dish of ice cream. I can't have a brownie bite without really wanting more and more and more. But if I have none, that's pretty easy for me. But then moderators they get kind of panicky and rebellious if they're told they can't have anything. They want to have a little bit or they want to have it sometimes. They want to have a few French fries. And, you know, these are the people that keep the bar of fine chocolate in their desk drawer. And they're like, every day or so, I just have one square of fine chocolate and that's all I need. And I'm like, I couldn't do that. Like my whole day would be <laughs> one square, two squares, three squares. Now, later, it's my birthday. It's raining. I deserve it. I'm like, I might as well eat the whole thing at 8 a.m. because otherwise it's just going to distract me the whole day. And what's interesting is that, well, a lot of us are a mix in our approach. Like I can be a moderator about wine because I don't care about wine, but I have a friend who's like, I can have no wine or I can have four glasses of wine. See, I can have half a glass of wine and she can't because I'm not strongly tempted by it. But what's interesting is a lot of times people will tell somebody, well, you're doing it wrong. People will say to me, it's not healthy to be so rigid. You shouldn't demonize a certain food. You shouldn't be so rigid. It's not healthy to say no to yourself. You should follow the 80-20 rule. Even when I say, but this is what works for me. This makes me happier. This is how I can handle this in a way that works for me. And then I want to say to moderators, why do you keep breaking the rules? Why don't you just go cold turkey? Like, <laughs> why are you going back and forth between this? Because to me, it feels like, ugh, why are you even in this zone? Get out of this zone. But for them, that's a much better approach. And so part of it is realizing what works for you might not work for someone else or what works for someone else might not work for you. I think sometimes we blame ourselves when we struggle and someone else has success, instead of thinking, well, maybe I need to try a different approach, we think, well, maybe I need to turn into a different kind of person. 
Yeah, I think that's so true about it being different for everybody. If there's anything I've learned from coaching so many people over the years is that same thing doesn't work for everyone. And if you just have one solution and, you know, it's interesting because I'm a big believer in sort of the middle way. Like, you know, I'm a big believer in moderation and a lot of things, but I'm also an alcoholic and a heroin addict. And so it's like, there are some things in life that I'm like, moderation really works for me. And then there's a couple other pretty important ones that it's like, nope, I have to be an abstainer there. It's the only way that's ever worked for me. And so I love the fact that you identify that people can be a moderator in one area and an abstainer in the other, and that and that we're just not all the same. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned, because I think with alcohol, drugs, and, and cigarettes, people accept that some people can't have a little bit. They kind of embrace the idea that some people just have to give something up altogether and that you sort of have to organize your life around that because it's just, it's just not acceptable to have a little bit. It just doesn't work. But with things like sugar, people really often feel like, well, that's not right. That isn't a right belief. <laughs> you should be moderate, even though I'm saying it doesn't work for me. I'm not saying that it's the same thing, but I'm saying my just the, the ease with which I can go through life is very much the same. And, you know, somebody said to me, well, the thing about sugar is like, or like, you know, with food is an alcoholic can give up alcohol, but I can't give up food. And I was like, an alcoholic doesn't give up water. They're not drinking alcohol. They're not not drinking. Right. And you can still eat and not eat junk food or not eat processed food or whatever the rule it is that you want. There's more possibilities because I think sometimes people do get locked into this should work for me and I need to just keep doing it over and over and over again, even if it's not working, instead of saying, well, let me try a different way. And I think that's so important because what happens when we keep trying the same thing over and over and over again in the same way is we come to the conclusion that we are somehow broken or yes. bad or can't do it yes. instead of going, oh, maybe my approach isn't, yes. <laughs> isn't what's working. Absolutely. And it's very poignant for people to say, I have no willpower. I have no self-control. I can't keep my promises to myself. Instead of thinking, well, let me just set this up in a different way. It's kind of, I think a lot of time, and maybe you see this in coaching, when people have a strong model in their life of somebody who did it and had success, they're kind of like, well, if it worked for that person, it should work for me. Well, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Just the fact that like your husband did something one way doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Yeah. And that's what I like about different aspects of your work. We'll talk about the four tendencies here in a minute. You know, these different sort of types, the way we respond to expectation, you know, abstainers yep. versus moderators. Um, you talk often about paradoxes, you know, how these two things happen to be true. And I think that's just so important is to see like, again, there are some principles that can be generally helpful, but mm -hmm. but not for everybody. And the last thing I'll say on abstainers versus moderators, and, and you'll probably probably relate with this is I often say, you know, there's just beautiful clarity in none. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. it's like beautifully put. Yes. Yeah, there's no debate. There's nothing yes. that has to be figured out. It's just none. Well, and one of the things that's very true is we're very susceptible to decision fatigue. And, e and this is why you see like Barack Obama wearing the same few suits or, you know, people having work wardrobes or um, people eating the same lunch every day is that every little decision that we make takes something out of us. So moderation requires decision-making because it's like, when am I being moderate? When am I having too much? What is too much? Moderation, of course, is relative. So what you think of as moderate is also relative to who you surround yourself with. So how do you think about that? There's a lot of mental processing, <laughs> whereas you're right. With none, 
it's just totally clear, totally clear. There's no decision. And then that willpower doesn't have to engage. Wonderful. Well, let's move into your four tendencies model. The four tendencies basically is you say people respond to expectations differently. Yes. Would that be the best way to phrase that? Yes. So, that sounds so boring, but it ends up being really juicy. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's jump into it. Tell me, tell me a little bit more. Yeah. So we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations, which is like a work deadline or request from a friend, and then inner expectations, which is like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution or my own desire to get back into meditation. And depending on how we respond to outer and inner expectations, we're either an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. And I'll quickly define them. And almost always people know exactly what they are, plus like different characters from Game of Thrones and like everybody else in their life, their kids, their coworkers. Um, but there is a quiz. If you like to like take a quiz and have an answer spit out at you, some people do. There's a quiz at quiz.gretchenrubin.com and like two and a half million people have taken it. It's quick and free and it will give you an answer. But like I say, most people can just tell from this description. So questioners are people who readily meet inner and outer expectations. So they meet the New Year's resolution and they meet the work deadline without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them and they want to meet those expectations, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners, and questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. They're always looking for reasons. If something satisfies their inner demands for justification, they will do it no problem. They will have no problem following through. If it fails their inner standard, they will resist. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers, and obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So I, I got my first insight into the four tendencies when a friend said to me, I don't understand it. I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, why? It's the same person. It's the same behavior. At one time, it was effortless. Now she can't do it. So what it is, is the expectation. When she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she could go. But when she's trying to go on her own, it's a challenge. So the important thing for obligers to realize, and this is where coaches come in, this is why coaches are so valuable for obligers, is if there is an inner expectation to be met, there must be a form of outer accountability. If I want to read a book, I need to join a book group. If I want to exercise. I need to work out with a trainer or take a class or work out with a friend who's going to be annoyed if I don't show up. I need outer accountability. So their motto is, you can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They will do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't tell themselves what to do. Like, they don't sign up for a 10 a.m. yoga class on Saturday because they're like, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that somebody's expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. So their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. So those are the four. And they're not the same number. The biggest tendency for both men and women is obliger. The smallest tendency, it's conspicuous but small, is rebel. And then my tendency, the upholder tendency, is only slightly larger. So rebel is the smallest 
and Obliger is the largest. And so let's walk through each of those just a little bit more, how to kind of work with those. So, yes. so an upholder is somebody who meets internal and external. So that sounds perfect. Like, okay, I will, I will do that. But obviously nothing is perfect. No type is better than another yep. type. So let's talk about what if people are an upholder is important for them to know. You're exactly right. Each of these has strengths and weaknesses. Each has people who are wildly successful and also big losers. And the strengths are the weaknesses, you know, um, right, as so right. often happens. So the strengths of the upholder, they're great at execution. They're self-starters. They don't need supervision. They're great at following through, but they can be rigid. They get an idea in their head of how things are supposed to go. It's very hard for them to be flexible. They can be cold because it's like, oh, hey, the reports are due on Friday and you're asking me if I can proofread your report. But, you know, I can't do that because my report's due too and I don't have time to help you out. To an upholder, that seems appropriate. Inner expectations must be met. Yeah, we've got companies staying with us this weekend, but, you know, I'm training for the marathon. So I got to go for a 15 mile run on Saturday. (laughs) So that's just going to happen, you know? Yeah. And so that can seem cold. Um, And they can sometimes be judgmental because they don't understand why others um, struggle in situations where an upholder would not struggle. If you get upholders together, they will often start talking like, why can't other people just get their stuff done? This idea of understanding changing circumstances, needing to be flexible, needing to work in situations where it's not clear what success looks like or where it's ambiguous um, what the rules are, they can really struggle in those kinds of environments. One of the things that I often see in a lot of clients is it's sort of the all or nothing mindset. Like I need to exercise an hour a day. And if I can't exercise an hour a day, then I just say F it and I don't do anything. Would that fall into an upholder or do you see that sort of strain of perfectionism really running through all the groups? Well, that is a fascinating question. I think that probably you would see less of that in upholders because upholders would kind of build that in. That's the kind of thing they're sort of good at dealing with. But that is something that many people struggle with. It's sort of the don't break the chain. And then if the chain is broken, it's like, okay, well, this is just ruined. Um, Yeah. So I think that that is something where you, you sort of have to deal with it as a separate threat. But probably upholders might struggle with that less than others, in fact. Yeah, I just tend to see that sort of rigidness, right? You know, because what I've discovered about keeping certain habits going over a long period of time is it takes a certain amount of stubbornness and a certain amount of flexibility. Well, see, this is what's interesting. So the rigidity for the upholder is what others perceive. I'm an upholder. I don't perceive myself as rigid at all. I feel free. And that's hard for people who aren't upholders to understand is how free we feel. We feel so free because we can do what we put our minds to. We keep our promises to ourselves. But from the outside, it looks rigid because they're like, it's scary to me how much you stick to that. And it's like, it it doesn't feel scary from the inside. I have a friend who's an upholder and she went to the gym like 360 days in a year. And to me, I'm like, that's cool. And other people were like, that's sick. Really? (laughs) People said that to me. And I'm like, there's nothing sick about it. It's it's not easy. But the rigidity is really how others perceive or like when like you're changing the schedule on me. Well, I I was going to work from three to five and now you're telling me that I can't. But interestingly, when they did research on social media, what they found is that people with high conscientiousness, which is upholders, were actually had a very high use of words like leisure and weekend. Because one of the things upholders tend to be good at is building in what they need to do to execute. So they will say, I need a day off. 
I feel like my knee is weakening. To stay the course, I need to not train for three days. They're sort of good at drawing those boundaries and giving themselves leisure and rest. They might put it on the calendar, like I'll put on the calendar, I'm going to read on the sofa for two hours on Saturday. But it's still leisure to me, but it's scheduled. I have to schedule time to goof off. That looks rigid, but it feels free. So they, they're often good. Obligers are the ones who really struggle with feeling like everyone's pushing me around and I can't push back. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about questioners. So as you said, questioners are the people who they're not going to do anything just because someone told them to. (laughs) Yes. And one of the ironies, I thought, in what you wrote is that questioners hate being questioned. Yes. Yeah, I'm married to a questioner, and this is like a huge relief to me to realize that this was not just him constantly jerking my chain. <laughs> but the, it's ironic, as everybody comments, it's ironic that questioners don't like to answer questions, but it is a very common kind of pattern that you see among questioners, which is very funny. Yeah. Right. And so what sort of things do questioners need to know or, or what sort of things help them to be better at changing and sticking to habits? 
Well, when questioners struggle with like keeping a habit, like if a questioner says to me, like, I know I should exercise and I really want to commit to it, but I'm just not able to stick to it. For questioners, it's always about clarity. Questioners need to really feel the confidence that you're the authority that I trust. This is the best and most efficient course to take. This is customized to what I need. Questioners love to customize. Once they're clear, then their actions follow. But if they're kind of thinking well, should I be doing high intensity weight training or should I be doing cardio? And like, is it really more important to do CrossFit or would I be better off doing something outside? When they haven't really made up their minds, it's like they often don't move forward. So for them, clarity is really important. You're my doctor and you're telling me what to do. Do I really believe in you? Because if I don't believe in you, I'm probably not going to do what you say. It's not enough for me that you're a doctor. I need to trust your authority. And that's a high bar for many questioners. Um, Questioners sometimes suffer from analysis paralysis because their desire for perfect information makes it hard for them to move forward or to make a decision. And uh, I mean, I know two people who are questioners who are married and uh, they were trying to buy a new dishwasher and it took 18 months because anytime one of them was like, what about this? The other one would be like, but what about that? And what about this? And if we're going to put in a new dishwasher, maybe we should put in new countertops. And it was just like they spiraled out of control. So questioners need to learn how to manage uh, that need, the desire for just more and more and more research. Questioners do love to customize. They love to hack. So they love anything that allows them to like monitor or like step count or track their food or their spending. They tend to do very well with things like that. They can, in some circumstances, seem draining and overwhelming because it's like, oh my gosh, everybody else has heard enough in the meeting and you're still asking questions. So they need to be aware of that. And they also need to be aware that sometimes their questions can make others feel defensive or attacked. So it's like, if I'm a thin-skinned boss and you keep asking me questions, I might feel like, well, you're not a team player and you don't trust my authority. And you know, I don't understand why you're not just following what I say. But of course, to a questioner, they're like, well, the idea that this is what corporate says to do, or this is what you're telling me to do, or this is what we've always done, that's totally illegitimate to me. I'm not going to do it because of that. So we have to recognize that questioners need answers to their questions. This comes up a lot with children. You know, Children will say things like, why do I need to memorize the multiplication tables if I can just look it up on a calculator? Well, they need an answer to that. Why do they? Because if you don't give them an answer, they're not going to want to do it. And if you explain to them why this is really important, then they'll do it. But they need to have that answer. So would that mean that that people might move through different being an upholder, a questioner, a obliger throughout life? Because it does seem that a lot of children are naturally questioners. It isn't the case uh, that we're one at 10 and one at 40 or one at work and one at home. I am a big believer in the genetic roots of personality. I think these really are hardwired to you. And when you hear questions, like little kids ask questions like, why is the sky blue? Their question is, why should I? You know, um, you're telling me I can't drive barefoot. Why can't I? And then also people will say, well, little kids are all rebels or all teenagers are rebels. It's like they really aren't. If you know what it's like when somebody's like, you simply can't tell me what to do, um, that is different from just like a kid who doesn't want to go to bed. And then finally, obligers. Obligers, that's right. The biggest tendency. And obligers are really important for anybody in a coaching relationship because I, to me, this is like why coaching is so crucial for a huge percentage of people and why it can be a game changer because it represents outer accountability. So obligers, they're the folks who need outer accountability to meet outer and inner expectations. And this is why a lot of people, they're like very puzzled because they're like, well, at work, I never miss a deadline. I never let down my team. But then at home, 
I can't go running, you know, I'm not making my bed every morning or whatever it is that I'm trying to do. And so what is necessary is outer accountability. And you see this a lot when people go freelance or like, I know a lot of journalists who then go on book leave. A writer might think, oh, I have writer's block. And I'm like, no, when you were working for a newspaper, you had an editor and a deadline and group of people holding you accountable. But now that you're writing a book on your own, no one's looking over your shoulder. And so you're just kind of spinning your wheels. And what you need is outer accountability. So join a writer's group or get a coach or tell your agent that you will email her a chapter every four weeks. And if you don't hand it in, she's like, where's that chapter? I like was planning to read it this weekend and now you screwed up my schedule. Um, That's what can really work for obligers. And it's really remarkable to see how for so many obligers, this is like the light bulb that lets them have massive change in their life. Because a lot of times obligers are like, I need to learn to put myself first. I need to get clear on my priorities. I need to, I need to get more motivated. That's really a bad direction. You can't expect to be motivated by motivation. And so obligers will try to whip themselves into a frenzy of desire. And then they can't understand why that doesn't turn into action. And it just doesn't turn into action unless there's a form of outer accountability. Great. And then finally, rebels. So rebels resist all expectations. And so it's very exciting to be with rebels because they're very authentic. They know exactly what they want to do. They can flout convention. They love thinking outside the box. But it's hard to live or work with people who, if you ask or tell them to do something, are very likely to resist. So the key for rebels is to remember, for rebels themselves, if they're trying to get themselves to do something or someone else, is one is a key value for rebels is Uh, identity. So you're doing this not because the doctor told you to, or not because I told you to, or not because you know you should, or not even because you said you would. You're exercising because you're an athlete. You love to move your body. You love to be outside. You love that feeling of being alive and vital. You're doing it because you're an athlete. Or it's information consequences choice. You say to the rebel, well, you know, we have these mandatory 10 a.m. staff meetings on Wednesday that you don't go to. Um, Let me tell you what happens at those meetings. Um, We look at all the upcoming projects and the people who are at the meeting grab the good ones, the interesting ones, and we leave the boring ones for the people who skip the meeting. So the meeting is at 10 a.m. on Wednesday. It's up to you, man, because you can go or not go. But it's also important if you're dealing with a rebel, don't rescue them because then there's no negative consequences. They have to be allowed to experience negative consequences and don't remind them or try to nudge them or encourage them because every time you nudge them, you ignite the spirit of resistance. So the best thing to do with a rebel is like give them information consequences choice and then back away. And that is easier said than done, especially with children. But the more you remind, the more you ignite the spirit of resistance. Yeah, it's funny. When I look at these four tendencies, I feel like I do with a lot of personality types or tests that I take, which is I feel like I'm like 25% in each camp. I seem to, mm. always, when I take these tests, I seem to fall like what, Did right you in take the, the quiz? I did. Did it give you questioner? It gave me obliger. Well, that's interesting because I would have predicted obliger because you're a coach and coaches are often obligers because they understand, like they think everybody's like that. Doesn't everybody need outer accountability? But questioners often feel like they're a little bit of everything yeah. because they'll say, well, I if something makes no sense, I'll refuse to do it like a rebel. But if it makes sense, I'll do it like an upholder. And I'm like, yeah, but that you're saying, why would I? And that's questioner. 
So how do you feel about New Year's resolutions? If they make sense to me, I'm, I'm on board with them. How do you feel about the fact about making them on January 1st? I think it's a useful time for reflection, but I'm not dead set on it. I'll make a resolution anytime. Okay. I think you are a questioner. I would say you are a questioner. Yeah. It's funny because if I look at different periods of my life, I seem to, you know, there's certainly periods in my life where I was a rebel. Like I'm not doing anything that anybody tells me to do, including myself. Questioner, it's often like, well, I'm not going to do it because that doesn't make any sense. Or why would I do that? I'm yeah. not going to go to college. Why would I go to college? It looks like a rebel action. But the rebel uh-huh. is saying, I'm not going to college because you're telling me to go to college. The, re- the, yeah. the questioner is saying, why would I go to college? I have to go for, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. If it made sense, I would do it. But why am I going to waste my time and my energy? Yeah. And I love what you said at one point. And I think this is always so important with personality tests. It's not about pigeonholing people into limiting categories. It's providing insight. I'm always interested in personality tests because uh, there's one part of me that's like, I think there's insight and I learned something about myself. And I also don't want to only sort of take on this more limited identity. Exactly. I totally agree. And I also think that one of the things about that's nice about the four tendencies is it can save people energy and time. Because like, let's say you're trying to exercise just because that's such a common thing. It's like, if I know what tendency you are, I could be much more strategic in telling you what I think is going to work for you. There's a million bazillion ways that a person could try to get them to ex- get themselves to exercise. What do I think is going to work for you? And then, and that can save you yeah. time and energy and just, and to kind of unlock that so much more quickly for you instead of just throwing spaghetti against the wall. And often, you know, people will say you're doing it wrong because to me as an upholder, what you're doing seems like, I'll say, I don't want to be your babysitter. Why don't you just do your own work in your own way? Well, that's very bad advice for an obliger. It's great advice for an upholder. That's my advice to me, but it's not good advice for you. And sometimes it's counterproductive. Obligers need outer accountability. Rebels don't do well with outer accountability. They don't want someone looking over their shoulder. They don't want check-ins and monitoring. So if you have an obliger and a rebel, you're going to be like, okay, we need to go in very different directions here because you're coming from such different perspectives. Again, it's not that one way is right or better. It's just that when we know what you are, we can tailor it to what is going to be successful. I want to back up to something you sort of said in passing as we were going through these. And you said, I'm a big believer in the genetic-based personality idea. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I'm not sure I share that perspective, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I think a lot of personality is inborn. And of course, it's shaped by our culture and our personal circumstances and our environment. And even before we're born, of course, epigenetics is this fascinating new study of like how our surroundings and our environment affect us even before we make our first appearance in the world. You know, I do think a lot of things are hardwired and that one way or another, certain things come out. You know, like I've been an upholder since, you know, as far back as I was me, everyone in my life would, you know, say, yes, you are a little Hermione Granger type personality. Um, I don't think that wasn't the way my parents raised me. It was part of what I brought into the world. Now, of course, then there's that feedback because the way that I am affects the way people treat me. And if you're a questioner and you're born in North Korea, of course, you're going to shut that down. And if you're a questioner in Silicon Valley, that might be your, your greatest asset. So it's not like there's no influence, but I do think a lot of these things are, are part of what we bring into the world, many aspects of our nature. Well, I think it's interesting because in one of your books, it might have been your first book about happiness, you reference the studies that sort of say, hey, you know, current things. Thinking about happiness says that 50% of it 
is, I yep. don't remember the exact numbers, 50% yep. is genetic, some other, you know, part is this, and then 20% Life circumstances, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with his yeah. age, and, health, and, occupation, marital status, all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I always, with all these debates, like, is it genetic, is it environment, is it, I think it's, you know, the unquestionable answer is it's all of them, and it's just you know, what's useful is what levers can I actually pull? Exactly. The question is, given the place in which I've been placed by Providence, how can I move forward in the way that's right for me? Yeah. Given my life situation, given my inborn personality, given whatever I've learned from life, which might be good, might be bad, what can I do? I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. <laughs> and catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That raises a broader question of how much can people change? And I think this is a fascinating question Yeah, because I'm an example of pretty dramatic change. And I'll just, I'll, I'll give this as an example because I was reflecting on it recently. You know, at 24, I got sober and I was a, I was a heroin addict. And at that time in my life, I would have done nearly anything to get my hands on drugs. And I do mean, I think I would have done nearly anything. Luckily, I didn't have to. 
And then this spring and summer, my mom fell and was in a lot of pain. And for four or five months, every week, I went to the grocery and I picked up a bottle of Percocet or stronger pills and I carried them to her and I just gave them to her and it didn't trouble me at all. And when I, I sort of reflected back on that, like, wow. That's a long way. If you told me that that was ever possible, I would have said, no way. Yeah, maybe I could deliver them to her, but it would be really hard. And the truth was, I barely thought about it. So that's like one. Now, again, addiction is kind of a narrow lens on change, but, but I do find it just, it's one of those questions that fascinates me all the time. How much are we able to change and what can we change? I mean, that is the million dollar question. That is the fascinating question. And I, I got an email. I wish I had saved it because I'm haunted by it. I got an email from a woman. She described her life and how there was many, many things in her life that were not going right. And she said, every night I go to bed and pray that tomorrow will be different and that things will change. And I was just like, mm -hmm. they're not going to change that way. You know, it's like, you have to think about how can I be the instrument of change or like, you know, yes. it's, it's not something that's going to magically happen one morning. If you just want it badly enough, there has to be action. Um, and to me, yes. I guess that's, what's most interesting to me is we can think about all we want, but what is the action? Because action is concrete action. I can do, I can't get to my mind. Like people are like, how can I become more optimistic? I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea. I, I ignore everything that happens in the skull because who knows, you know, don't talk to me about, you know, dopamine, like who can, I don't know. Yeah. But our actions, we can affect our actions. And so to me, when I think about change, I'm very focused on the concrete action that people could take in the hopes of achieving an aim, because that's the thing that we can most readily control. Um, it's within our grasp. I agree. I use a phrase often, I don't know where I picked it up, but that um, listeners of the show have heard it a thousand times, which is sometimes I can't think my way into right action. I have to act my way into right thinking. Oh, that's so brilliant. That's so true. Wait, say it again. Sometimes I can't uh, think my way into right action. I have to act my way into right thinking. So true. And so much easier. Yeah. So much easier to control our conscious thoughts and actions, our, our conscious actions. They can control our conscious and unconscious thoughts that's really hard you know <laughs> it's like right, take the right. easy road man to me it's like okay um if you know you're going to be happier if you exercise i would focus all my attention on like how can i go for a 20 minute walk a day instead of being like how do i make myself into the kind of person who just effortlessly loves to run it's like can you do that i don't know if you can do that Sounds hard. Right, right. And you can certainly, I think, you know, momentum and, and variety of different things help with all that. But but I'm with you. And then I sort of see this on like a spectrum. And I'd be curious to kind of get your thoughts. Like on one hand, we've got thoughts, we've got emotions, and we've got behavior, right? And behavior is the easiest lever to pull, right? And emotion seems to be like completely, you know, encased in stone. You can't get to it. And then thoughts to me seem to be sort of in the middle. Like I can't stop what thoughts come because like I just if you meditate you realize that in like two minutes like oh my god but I do have some ability to say okay here this thought came what am I going to do with it am I going to engage it am I going to move on you know I, to use the addiction process again I was talking with somebody about this recently I said well the one thing I've never allowed myself to do is I've never allowed when the thought has come about using I've never toyed with it I change the channel 
I, you know, I have to, I may have to change that channel 75 times. So again, I can't stop it from coming. And so it seems like behavior's easiest, emotions impossible, and thoughts are kind of in the middle. You know, and this reminds me, like in the, tw- I was saying and better than before, I talk about the 21 strategies of habit change. And one of the strategies is the strategy of distraction. And I think distraction now has this very negative overtone because we think of ourselves as being distracted or like being distracted from what's important by our social media or whatever. But you're talking about a purposeful, mindful kind of distraction, which is, as you say, change the channel. You are choosing the channel. You have a lot of control about what's on that TV screen. And maybe you need to like get up and and turn on your favorite song or maybe you need to go outside or maybe you need to play with your dog or maybe you need to call a friend. But there's ways we can intervene to just to use distraction as a powerful and helpful tool I mean, this is the thing, I mean, talking about addiction with craving, one of the things they find is that people think that cravings build and build and build and then overwhelm us, but at least with like kind of sugar cravings or that kind of thing, you've got them and then they kind of go away. They don't last that long. And if you distract yourself, yeah, it's fine. But sometimes people are like, oh, well, now it's like now that I've got the thought of ice cream, it's like I, I can't, I, I'm just stuck here until I eat, uh, go to the kitchen and eat like an entire carton, carton of ice cream because it's like that thought is in my mind. You can change the channel. Um, obviously, with something like heroin, that's a much, much, much bigger deal. You're mindfully doing that. Yeah, and the principle is the same. And I agree with you about distraction. I do think, like, for a lot of us, there is an almost, you know, pathological distraction that we live our lives in. But but I often, you know, I, I end up working with a lot of people who are dealing with the variety of troublesome thought patterns, right? And, you know, I'm like, well, here's three healthy things you can try doing. Mm-hmm. And if those three healthy things don't work, you know what? Do anything else except ruminate on that thought more. Do anything except strengthen that pathway. And I noticed that in your work, and I was one of the other things that was on my list to talk about, because I agree. I don't think distraction is always bad. I mean, it's like everything, it's a good servant and a bad master. So when you feel like you're mindfully using it as a tool to fill your mind with the thoughts that you want, then it's good. If you feel like you're being hijacked by Instagram and like now you can't like think a thought or have a conversation with your kids because your phone is calling to you, then you feel like, okay, it's the boss. And that's a bad feeling. So there's many things. And if you have that feeling, then it's like, okay, we'll turn off your notifications and turn your phone to grayscale and put your phone on a shelf in a behind a closed door. Like there's a million <laughs> things you can do once you realize that's the problem. But I think the real issue, and this is like implicit in what you were saying, is that when we feel passive, like this is happening to me, what are you going to do? Then we have no recourse. But when we say, I am the boss here, this is my mind. What will I do to direct my mind along the path that I want and that is going to make me happier and healthier? Well, we are the boss and we, you know, um, and it's easier said than done. Like all this stuff, it's easier. It's easy to talk about it. It's very hard to do it. So this is why you need a lot of strategies and tips about, well, go listen to some great music and dance around the kitchen or, you know, whatever it might be. Take a shower and blast the music. Can almost never, uh, overestimate the value of music, at least for me, and in, in being a healing thing. You probably knew this. I only realized this recently is that music releases dopamine in the brain. And so it seems to me that it would be a very good counter to any kind of craving because if what you're needing is like a, a hit, listening to one of your favorite songs gives you that hit, gives you that feeling of pleasure and satisfaction. 
Yeah, I've said before, there's few types of therapy that are as good for me as loud music sometimes. Like sometimes just the right thing, better than what else I've got. Well, I think now this is one of the things where like new technology has been really helpful is people talk all the time about their playlists that they have made. And people used to make mixtapes and stuff like that. But now the technology makes it so much easier to have like your psych up tape and your, your, you know, contemplative tape. And, you know, people have these, their go to if they need to kind of invoke a certain mood. They can pick and choose the music that is going to get them into that place right away. And I think that's a, a, a wonder. I am not a big music person myself, so it's not something that I enjoy doing. But I certainly see yeah. so many people around me like really using this in a powerful way. And it's free. Yep. And, you know, it's like, this is great. Yeah, no, I talk about that a lot because for me, I know music is one of those things that helps. And I'm also a person who deals with depression and I know that music helps with depression. Yeah. The challenge for me is that if I'm depressed and I go, should I listen to music? I go, no. And should I then remember that, yes, I should listen to music, I'll open up my music and I'll go, do I want to listen to that? No, 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 no. Because nothing sounds good. So I have a playlist that I know, like, just go to that playlist, hit shuffle, turn it up, and it's got a decent chance of helping. And you talk a lot about this, about you decide ahead of time. So what's the name of your playlist? It's just called Positive. That's good. Kind of boring. I like that. (laughs) Oh, good. Yes, that's a great idea. So we're nearing the end of our time. I just want to hit a couple of your secrets of adulthood on the way out because some of these are so great. And one just really hit me recently because, well, it's just something that's been going on in my life. And you say, if you're too tired to do anything except watch TV or cruise the internet, go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. We've all been there. Yeah, yeah. No, I find myself laying in bed at the end of the night, kind of wasting time. And if you ask me, I'm like, well, I'm too tired to do anything else. But it occurs to me, like, go to sleep. And so, you know, for me, I've been doing sort of a January where it's like the phone is not in the bedroom. And this is recognizing this truth is part of the thing that helped me to be like, get it out of here. Yeah, more sleep. If you need it, it's like, it is the, it's the elixir of life. Yes. And so you've got a variety of these. You say that the opposite of a great truth is also true. And I kind of want to talk about that real quick, because one of these that you use, and I love this, is accept yourself and expect more from yourself. So tell me a little bit about that. How do you do both those things? Well, you know, I think that's the great tension within kind of the challenge of a happy life, because on the one hand, we do want to accept ourselves and admit kind of our basic nature and not to constantly wish that we were different or fight against something that's just sort of part of who we are. But then at the same time, you don't want to just throw up your hands and be like, well, here, this is the way I am. There's no way to change. We really do want to expect more from ourselves. But I think for each person, Only I can be the judge of what that means for me to accept myself or to expect more for myself. Um, And like an example from my own life is I'm a really fearful driver. My sister is too. My sister lives in LA, so she has to drive all the time. Fortunately, I live in New York City, so I don't have to drive very much. But in a way, that's bad because I can go a really, really long time without driving. And my fear of driving kind of got bigger and bigger. And now I really have to force myself every time I'm in a situation where I can drive. Once I'm driving, I'm fine, but I dread driving. And I'm like, should I just accept myself and say, hey, Gretchen, you're just a person who doesn't drive? And I'm like, no, this is a place where I can really expect more for myself. I can, ex- I know how to drive. I've been driving since I was 16 years old. I can expect this of myself, even though it kind of fills me with a sort of dread. For someone else, 
they might think about that in a different way. And, you know, people have all different kinds of struggles. Public speaking, is this something that I'm going to expect from myself or am I going to be like, public speaking's not my bag? Different people would have different decisions about that. That very idea has been something I've talked about on the show so many times and asked so many people about, which is like this fundamental sort of, like you said, a tension that sits there between like striving and growing and changing and being who we are. And, yes. and it's, you know, I'm a, I've been a student of Buddhism for a long time and a very simplified explanation of Buddhism, and it is vast oversimplification, is, well, you, you struggle because you want things, right? And that yet I look at the universe and I'm like, well, the universe just seems to be constantly more, more, more. And so I've always felt that tension. And I think the answer for me, and the reason I don't ask the question as often anymore, but I kind of came up against it right in your work, was that, well, it's really both. Yes. And like you said, I have to figure that out for myself. And it's not even always the same line, even with the same thing for me, but I just have to do that. But if I get too far to either side of that, I find myself in trouble. A question that sometimes is helpful, like in that place of tension where you say where it really can be very hard to tell, like which which is the way to think about something, is the idea to choose the bigger life. Because for everyone, the bigger life looks different. And I remember when my family was deciding whether to get a dog, um, I had a list of pros and cons. I was pretty anti-dog. Everybody else was very pro-dog. And I felt like it was very balanced pros and cons. And so how do you make a decision? And then I thought, well, choose the bigger life. And I instantly knew that the bigger life for my family was to get a dog. That made it very clear. And I think sometimes people are like, okay, you have an opportunity to moderate at this conference. You can moderate a panel. You feel really nervous about it. There's reasons to do it. Maybe there's reasons not to do it. Maybe it would consume so much energy and time that you would be better spent doing other things. You can play out the pros and cons. But then if you said choose the bigger life, I think for some people, they'd be like, you know, the bigger life is to let go of the idea of moderating. That is just not my way. For me, the bigger life is to do the amazing presentation or to do the slides or to plan the networking event or whatever. And someone else would be like, choose the bigger life. I got to moderate this thing. I want to get up front. I want to get the mic in my hand. That's the bigger life for me. So sometimes that question like clarifies because it's like only you know what the bigger life is for you. I absolutely love that. It's a different way of saying something that yeah. I can't remember who who said it, but was like, you know, about a choice is does this does this expand me or contract me? Mm hmm. Right. You exactly. Know, is, but I like, is it a bigger life as a real simplifying question? I think that's a wonderful idea. Well, I think that's a great place for us to wrap up. So um, thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you. Well, thank you so much. I feel like we could talk for a long time. We're interested in all the same things. <laughs> we sure are. We sure are. And um, we'll have links in the show notes to your books as well as your wonderful podcast. Terrific. Thanks so much. Thank you. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. 
David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A A podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.